What I would like to explore in the talk this evening is what it might mean to take refuge. Most people, before they come on retreat, have at least a few thoughts about what their retreat will be like. I think for people who've done retreats before, um, their thoughts are often based upon what they've experienced in the past. Sometimes there's a, a hope to improve upon one's last performance, and sometimes there's a fear, actually, of repeating one's last experience. For those people who are new to retreat, the actual taking of that step to come on a retreat can often carry with it a mixture of both anticipation and anxiety. We have a curious tendency, I think, on some level within ourselves to regard coming on retreat as a kind of test or a sort of an examination of spiritual worthiness. You know, and that is often where the anxiety comes in is that somewhere in the background of our consciousness with our thoughts, we sow certain seeds about, you know, what our meditation should look like, what we should look like in retreat, what we should experience, where we should get to. And, you know, that actually, they are thoughts that do, that are seeds of anxiety. Most of us also discover that our thoughts actually really never prepare us for being on retreat. That you can't actually rehearse for being on retreat. That very often we are surprised, not always pleasantly, <laughs> sometimes unpleasantly surprised, but we're often surprised about in, in understanding our encountering again just really what it means to be with ourselves, to be still, to be awake. One thing that is probably shared, whether one is new or experienced in meditation, is that it is actually very rare that we end up on a retreat by accident. Most of us, whether we are conscious of it or not so conscious of it, I feel do have some intuitive call towards discovering what is possible for us as human beings. Most of us do have an intuitive longing for a discovery of, of real death, of peace, of compassion, to find a deeper spiritual core within our own being. That call, I think that intuition, is often actually not even always articulated to ourselves consciously. And yet it is the energy, it is the force that brings most of us to practice. When we do arrive, when we do actually begin on a retreat, we discover that it is actually one of the most challenging things that we do in our lives. That being with ourselves, 
being present theoretically is so simple. In reality, we find how incredibly ingenious we are at being everywhere but present. And how much energy we expend in all of the strategies that we engage in at times to actually camouflage stillness or to camouflage that sense of solitude within ourselves. It's not always easy to welcome ourselves. It's not always easy to welcome the present moment. It's also not always easy to really deeply understand that many of the challenges we meet on retreat are actually the gateway to some of the most profound lessons of our lives. We sit and we walk, sometimes we're agitated or restless or dull or chattering or discontented or doubtful or anxious. And how often our first response is to say, well, this is really bad news. This shouldn't be happening. Or it's a kind of waste of time. Or often when we sit with agitation or anxiety or restlessness, we think, oh, well, this is somehow an obstacle that I need to get over. And that when I get over this, then my meditation really will begin. You know, when I get over my body pain, when I get over my agitation, when I get over my anxiety, over my doubt, then that's going to be real meditation. Or we think of our experience very often as a problem to fix. You know, we think anything that kind of doesn't fit in with our image, our expectation of an ideal meditation, is somehow a problem to fix or a problem to resolve. Yeah, that we can figure out how to fix it. It isn't easy for us to appreciate that the very roller coaster of our heart and mind is the very, of course, the only place, perhaps, the very place, perhaps the only place, where we truly understand what compassion and patience and generosity and acceptance and trust really are. You know, anyone can be compassionate when nobody is disturbing them. You know, anyone can be filled with loving kindness when they're surrounded by people who flatter them. You know, everyone can be equanimous, of course, you know, when we have nothing that seems to be actually getting in our way in this life or interrupting our desires. You know, equanimity gushes forth like a spring. And yet, the true, the true death of compassion, the true depth of patience, the true depth of equanimity are actually, is actually discovered in those moments where we actually are in the midst of our lives. It's very easy to kind of ignore life. You know, to, to, when, we, when we regard our experience at this moment as a problem or something to get over, then we're kind of looking for these guarantees. You know, it would probably be very reassuring, you know, if we got up here in the morning and said, you know, okay, 
you know, day one, you're going to have dullness and restlessness, but day three, you know, it's going to be bliss. You know, that would be really reassuring on some level, you know, to have these concrete signposts. And yet the truth is, you know, we don't know. We might sit for seven days with dullness. You know, we might sit for seven days with restlessness. We might, we might sit for, for seven days with doubt. What would we do then? You know, what would we do then? Would we find our way to continually sort of postpone being awake? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when this life is over, then I'm going to be awake? You know, this practice is not actually about ignoring life. It is about turning towards the very drift of our life to understand how we can be awakened by it. We discover that in our life and in our practice, really, there is this very bottom line that we are asked to meet and asked to embrace all of ourselves. That we are really invited to dive beneath appearances and to find freedom in the company of our demons in the midst of struggle. <clears throat> sometimes it's said, if you want to know about your past, look at your mind now. And if you want to know about your future, look at your mind now. This mind, today's mind, is actually a product of everything we have ever thought and experienced and felt and concluded and assumed and believed and engaged in. That is this mind of today. It's not a mind. We cannot, obviously, do a great deal to alter that which has preceded this mind of now. None of us can undo, change, alter, modify, recover that which has already passed. What it is important to appreciate, that it is in this mind now, and I use this in the biggest sense, this mind and heart of now, that we are giving birth to the future. That we are giving birth to our future. In this mind of now, we are actually giving birth to our mind and heart of the next moment. That actually makes awareness or wakefulness of how we are present in this now actually extraordinarily significant. Because we see how in our practice, again I spoke about this morning, we are trying to gather ourselves. We are engaged in the effort of gathering ourselves of learning to reconnect, to reclaim the heart and mind of this moment, and really to discover the kindness of ceasing to abandon ourselves. If you were to go into a monastery, a a more traditional retreat session, one of the things that we would be first invited to do would be to take refuge in what is called the three jewels. We would be invited to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. In fact, many monastic days actually begin with the reciting of the refuges. It's something we don't always talk about so much in the West. Because I think sometimes when we talk about taking refuge, 
some people tell me they kind of tune out, you know, as if this has nothing to do with them, or if it's a sort of Asian tradition, or as if it kind of has a sort of religious overtone. And tonight I'd just like to reflect on my understanding of what it means to take refuge, of what it means to take refuge if we strip away all the religiosity around it, if we strip away all the kind of tradition and the culture around taking refuge, what it might mean to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. In my understanding, there are three aspects to taking refuge. One aspect is learning how to cultivate sanctuary within ourselves. Taking refuge really has very little to do with anything outside of ourselves. It has to do with our inner life. And the first aspect of taking refuge is learning to cultivate or to trust that inwardly we can discover a sanctuary, a core within our own hearts of mind of such balance and protection and strength and trust that actually is reliable, is in something, a place we can discover in ourselves that is reliable. A place of poise and balance where we can rest, in which we're not actually shattered by the storms of our lives. The second part of taking refuge to me is about vision. It's about learning to have a very deep, a very profound trust and confidence in our own capacity for wholeness, for awakening, for freedom. That sense of vision in the practice or taking refuge is really concerned with how we nurture what is most possible for us in each moment rather than resigning ourselves to what is impossible. And the third dimension of taking refuge to me is concerned with clear intention. To acknowledge that it is the intentions that we live with in each moment that often create the kind of world we experience. That the kind of intentions we bring into each moment are what connects us and they are also what teach us to live in a sacred way. That it is very often the quality of clear intention that makes the difference between living in fantasy and ideals and good ideas or embodying the qualities that we truly value. Intention is also actually what teaches us about a path the path that we can follow in each moment. The first of the refuges that we are often invited to participate in is often invited to take refuge in the Buddha. Now this is not an, an invitation to take refuge in some historical figure who lived 2,500 years ago. In fact, for hundreds of years after the Buddha's death, there weren't such a thing as Buddha statues. You know, the Buddha was often portrayed as footsteps in sand or a wheel that portrayed 
the teaching of a path. But often what was portrayed in these symbols actually was about Buddha nature and not about a person. What was portrayed in the symbols is that the very profound liberation, the very profound understanding that was possible for each of us. I think somewhat sadly when people think about you know, taking refuge in the Buddha, what immediately comes to mind is, is some kind of image or some kind of statue that, you know, quite frankly, looks a little removed from most of our lives. Mm-hmm. There's a Zen statement that says, you know, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. And I think sometimes actually it's a great gift to ourselves to abandon the images, to abandon the pictures, and to really look actually at the story or the message that is meant to be portrayed. Whenever you do see a Buddha statue, it's never, you know, kind of cowering in a corner, you know, turned away from the world. In fact, the Buddha statues are always saved in the world. And in many traditions, there is this, you know, this overture, this gesture of bowing to the Buddha, which is actually about learning how to bow to ourselves. It's about learning how to honor and to take refuge within our own trust and confidence in our own awakening. The Buddha statues, what they represent, the story they represent, is about compassion. It's about freedom, it's about poise of being. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we are taking refuge in our capacity to see what is true, to bring to an end sorrow and struggle, wherever they appear. Sometimes I think it's really helpful to demystify the whole kind of story of the Buddha and to understand, you know, what it is like to be a person who lives with a kind of quest, who is on a kind of vision quest, with a longing for happiness, a longing for freedom, a longing for compassion, a longing to be deeply rooted in spiritual depth. This is actually not such an unfamiliar story to us. We can acknowledge that story within our own story. And I think sometimes, you know, we don't always deeply honor enough the intuition that we have within ourselves that actually draws us towards intimacy, that draws us towards understanding. Sometimes I think it's very important to hold very clearly in our own heart and mind why it is that we practice. You know, it's really not for self-improvement. You know, it's really not just so that we can cope better with life. It really is to awaken, you know, to really nurture those seeds within ourselves of possibility. That vision, that kind of vision, you know, this is the cloth and the fabric of the path. It is really what makes the path meaningful. And very often in our practice, we need to remind ourselves that we are Buddhas with amnesia, who at times somewhat suffer with a kind of failure of or surrender of vision. It's very easy 
to suffer a failure of vision. Those moments, you know, when we find ourselves really entangled, you know, and we know, we start to understand more this word entanglement by the second day of our retreat. <laughs> we know what it feels like to be entangled. You know, entangled in a story, entangled in a struggle, entangled in, in a conflict. Sometimes we look at those moments and we think, oh, here I am again. You know, this is so familiar to me. I've been here many, many times. And I think sometimes that word again, you know, it's a very potent word that has this long history, doesn't it? You know, when we say the word again, you know, here I am again, you know, there's a whole kind of history of self-image that comes with that word again. And we look at it and we see that word again and we may perhaps feel, oh, you know, this has been so much part of my past, this kind of pattern of entanglement, that it's really going to continue to be my future. And we may also actually feel differently. Actually, for many people in practice, I think actually they do see change. They really see change. They actually see that because something has a long history, it doesn't mean it always has a long future. But actually, we do start to wake up in our life. And when we start to wake up, it is actually no longer possible to go to sleep in exactly the same way. That actually becomes impossible. You know, sometimes we can try to go back to sleep in a familiar way. And yet there's always that little voice in the background that says, I know exactly what I'm doing, you know. I know exactly what's going on here. Talking with someone who has just, you know, done many, many months of retreat, you know, and they were having like a few really sticky days, you know, and they thought, well, you know, what I really need is chocolate. I need chocolate, you know, chocolate will really make me feel better, you know. And this is when we were in the old house, you know, on the other side of Denver, and they told me about this long process of finally getting to that point, you know, where they hadn't even been off the ground in four months, you know getting to that point, you know, where they could find some money to go to the store, you know, to get some chocolate, you know. And they said all the way there, you know, there was this little voice in the background saying, you know, this is really clinging, this is really being lost, you know, this is really grasping. We got to the store, bought the chocolate, you know, and found they totally couldn't enjoy the chocolate. Like every mouthful was accompanied by this little voice that, not quite what you thought it would be, is it? You know, still suffering, you know, still sticky, you know, sweet sensations in my mouth, still suffering. And how was this, you know, that impossibility sometimes of just going back to sleep in the same way? We all experience this, actually. You know, sometimes waking up is a little painful at times. Um... And yet it's almost a no-choice situation. That we are changed, actually, by experience. Our sense of self, our sense of the world around us, our sense of how we relate to things, is actually changed by experience. And it is actually not possible then to recover some previous self that never had that experience. 
Waking up is, in a sense, irreversible. There are moments, certainly, of, you know, kind of losing it along the way. But it is essentially irreversible. And some people really think that's not such good news. You know, they'd like to have the option. You know, I'll be awake when things are great and pleasant. You know, but when things are actually really difficult or sticky, you know, there's kind of advantages to, to being asleep. But it is actually irreversible. As we wake up, we do come to understand that meditation is more than just a mechanism for learning to cope. There is something much more possible for us than just coping with the difficulty. We are learning, perhaps intuitively, perhaps slowly, that actually real freedom and real depth of heart and mind is our heritage. Whenever you look at a Buddha statue, a Buddha image, what you see is the Buddha is often portrayed, most often portrayed, as seated on a lotus flower. In Asia, lotus flowers never grow or thrive in water that is too clean or pure. In fact, the murkier, the slimier, the muddier the water, the more beautiful does the lotus flower grow and bloom. The enduring message of all Buddhists is that we actually never find wisdom and compassion that we seek for outside of this body, this mind, this heart, and this life. That what we're always learning to do is to actually take our seat, our own seat, on that lotus flower to really discover what it means at times to find spaciousness when things feel really dark and contracted, to find peace when things feel really chaotic, to find loving kindness when we feel most aversive. We are learning to be awake in our lives. And learning to be awake in our lives is opening to being awakened by all things. This is so important for us. In our life, all of us will actually meet times when our world seems to fall apart, when our certainties seem to dissolve, when our bodies at times break down, when people that we love die, when we are at times disappointed by others or by ourselves. Tragic moments of great hurt and fear visit all of us. Even sometimes we come on to a retreat, you know, feeling like our life is really calm and really smooth, and then surprised to find ourselves in the midst of emotional and psychological storms that leave us floundering. And what we keep visiting over and over are those eternal life lessons that we really can't control anything at all, outwardly and inwardly that we really can't armor ourselves against change, that we really can't transcend this body, mind, heart, or life. 
And you know, for most of us, it takes it's a long path. It can be a really, really long path to learn to make peace with those lessons. It's like here we are really slow learners about how to live in harmony just with what is. So often we're more in the mode of striking out, of saying, you know, why? Why is this happening? Life is unfair to accuse and to blame. This shouldn't be happening. And yet all of our accusations and our blames and our shoulds we discover just make not even one iota of difference. In fact, in those mechanisms, what we really do is layer suffering upon suffering. Where do we turn when we feel groundless? You know, where do we turn actually when everything seems to dissolve around us? Where do we go when there seems to be nothing that we can really rely upon or lean upon that isn't going to crumble? This is where we learn to take refuge. This is where we learn to find that place within ourselves, which is, which is an unshakable core of balance, of openness, of steadiness. True meditation isn't found just in moments of joy and stillness. Meditation is most deeply discovered, in my experience, often in those moments when our hearts feel the most numb and all the doors are closed. Because those are the moments actually where we have to turn inwardly, where we have to trust in ourselves, have confidence in ourselves, because there's nowhere else to go. You know, I think sometimes uh, Westerners, we have this kind of romantic image, you know, of Asian monasteries, you know, as being these places of incredible calm and peace and serenity. You know, my experience is that Asian monasteries are some of the noisiest places in the world. In fact, to me, they often remind me of airports, you know, like they're in a state of perpetual construction. I've never ever been in a monastery that wasn't engaged in some form of construction. Mm-hmm. I remember once being in a monastery in Thailand, you know, and I, was having a, I had a hard time in Thailand. You know, I had a hard time with the hierarchy, I had a hard time with the heat, you know, I had a hard time with, with you know, starving, I had a hard time with everything, you know. And then I said, I just really hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of some virtuous way to get out of this monastery that didn't look like a cop-out, you know. And I remember going to this abbot, you know, and saying, you know, it's too much, you know, it's too much, I can't do it. I said, you know, how do you really expect anybody to meditate, you know? You know, you've got the scaffolding going up, you've got the builders shouting, you know, you've got the radios playing, the dogs barking. I said, how can you possibly think I can meditate in the midst of all of this? And he looked at me in this really puzzled way and he said, how can you not? <laughs> ah, it is <laughs> one of those moments of illumination. How can you not? Because what's your other choice? You know, the other choice is to kind of rail and scream and shout, you know, and flounder in the agitation and the aversion and the resistance. It's like, how can you not? 
I think sometimes that's what it really means to take refuge in ourselves. How can we not meet this? How can we not welcome it? How can we not trust in ourselves to embrace this moment? Our greatest refuge when we are groundless is really not in trying to explain everything, fix everything. Our greatest refuge at times lies in our capacity to stand still, to open and to listen deeply, and to connect with just the simple truth of this moment. Surrendering our desperate desire for solutions and explanations sometimes is actually what allows us to be present. And this is where our modus virus actually grows. I mean, there are times in our life, certainly, where doing and action are very appropriate. And there are times when simplicity and stillness are actually our greatest refuge. In fact, those times, I think, when we're most tempted to flee from the moment, to flee from what's happening, those are the times when it's most important to return. Because that is like a gesture of freedom in search of freedom. You know, when the Buddha was asked about the difficulties of traveling this path, he said, you know, if I didn't have the total faith, the total confidence that it was possible for you to do this, that it was possible for you to be awake, I wouldn't ask it of you. But because I have that total faith, that total confidence that it is possible for you to awaken, I ask this of you. And there weren't kind of exceptions in that. You, didn't, you know, the Buddha never said, you know, everybody can be awake except if you come from, you know, Yorkshire or Ohio or, you know, don't have the right body or something like that, you know. But there were no exceptions. Returning to the simplicity of what is actually creates a sanctuary. Refuge is found in being present with just this moment. You know, it's very different than our usual ways of trying to find refuge. It's often in opinions and convictions and you know sometimes the opinions are convictions of every of other people all of that crumbles you know and when we try to take refuge in something that crumbles we just get agitated we just get very very restless the greatest protection the greatest refuge our heart and mind actually is in our capacity to be present a capacity to be connected with the simple truth of the moment. Just this thought, just this feeling, just this sensation, just this sound, just this stillness, just this movement. Our stories are never our refuge. Our stories are about conclusions. I am, you are, the world is, this is like this. This is no refuge for us. It will always crumble. Taking refuge in the Dharma is the invitation to take refuge in the path of discovering what is true. This practice that we do, this path that we're on, it really does have a direction. We don't do this to stay the same. 
It is a journey towards peace, it's a journey towards clarity, a journey towards balance. It's a cultivation, a conscious cultivation and fostering of greatness of heart and mind. And those qualities are actually not distant goals. They are the essence of the path and we need to learn how to turn them into verbs. What it is, what it means to practice peace what it means to embody sensitivity, what it means to practice wakefulness, to embody wakefulness, what it means to embody compassion. The more that we just think about goals, then we think dualistically about this dichotomy between where we are and this very distant place about where we're going. A lot of this path is actually about healing that dichotomy. It is about actually placing our aspirations in the midst of the moment. You know what at this moment is lacking? Where is the peace in this moment? Where is the stillness in this moment? Where is the confidence, the happiness, the well-being in this moment? The path is almost a way of bringing our own capacity for freedom into focus. It's a way of breathing life into the practice. Into, into the practice. Taking refuge in the Dharma is also a way of clarifying intention, of learning really how to live a committed life, a life that is dead, you know, a life of dedicated moments, rather than a life of lost moments. I think it's so important to let go of this idea that meditation is something that we do, you know, that we pick up and that we put down, you know, and that it needs a particular you know, geographical location and a particular form. This form that we use here, it is really here to teach us how to live in a meditative spirit. That's what it's here to teach us, not as an end in itself. How to live in a meditative spirit in a way in which our dedication to awakening has no beginning to no ending. That intention is something really so powerful. It is the intention of every moment when we come to sit to know what is this sitting in the service of. When we go to walk, when we go to work, when we go to stand, you know, what is this moment dedicated to? What is it really in the service of? I think that's important, you know, sometimes people, you know, they do have, they can get into a retreat mode, you know, where the bell is, you know, like this beginning and ending type thing, you know, and we can come and sit without really any sense of intention at all, you know, and we know that it's possible to sit on a zafu, kind of like a toadstool on a log, you know, it's like, it's feeling like it's a lucky accident, you know, if we happen to run into a breath every now and then, you know. Uh, you know, you know, it's really like we won the lottery, you know, if we have a moment of peace, you know. It's not an accident, this place. It's nothing accidental about depth and practice. It is actually born of dedication, you know, it's born of commitment, it's born of learning to actually really foster that in a very awake way in our lives. We really see that in our practice, taking refuge in the Dharma is actually about learning to study life. It's learning to study our own life, to reflect upon the moment, to investigate the moment. What is truth? What leads to happiness and freedom? What leads to sorrow and confusion? 
No one outside of ourselves can actually learn those lessons for us. We see them more and more within ourselves. Then we take refuge in the Dharma, actually, when we take refuge in that commitment to being awakened by all things. And then the Dharma is not just our practice. You know, the Dharma is the sky and the clouds and the wind and the birds and the stones and the water. All of this is actually a manifestation of the Dharma because if we listen deeply, we can be touched and awakened by all that which is around us. With mindfulness, we truly come to understand that nothing is irrelevant, that everything is worthy of our wholehearted presence. Then, actually, we really do learn to live in a sacred way. Attention awakens us, but it does allow everything around us to come into focus. You know, earlier this year, I was teaching in Switzerland, and one of our friends there just started a new center high up, and uh, all the windows look out on this, you know, this kind of postcard picturesque alpine range, you know. Like you look out and there's this, there's the Alps, you know, that you've always looked at. It's quite stunning. And, and yet it's so high up the center that often the clouds and the fog comes up from below. So you're kind of, a lot of times suspended above the clouds, you know, it's like it's just you and the mountains floating in this world. And then sometimes the fog comes up higher, you know. And when the fog comes up higher, you could be anywhere. You could be anywhere in the whole world, you know. And it's kind of like that when we get lost in our fog, I think. You know, we're really not awakened by anything. Nothing is visible to us. And the fog we get lost in is often our entanglement with the stories, the descriptions, the projections, the needs, the likes, the don't, the don't mind. We see when we can descend more into stillness, it's like a clearing of that fog. And we find ourselves extraordinarily touched by the simplest of things. You know, the blooming of a flower, the sound of a bird, sensation in our knees. All of that is actually speaking to us about life, about the possibility of harmony, the possibility of simplicity. We take refuge in the Sangha, which is again not just taking refuge in the long lineage, the long lineage of teachers and mystics who practiced and traveled this path before us, but taking refuge actually in the kinship of all things. Taking refuge in the Sangha is an invitation to go beyond those borders of I and you, of us and them. It's actually an invitation to go beyond those separations and to see the profound kinship, the profound interrelatedness of all things. Because that is actually the source of compassion, it's the source of wisdom. So the Sangha that we take refuge in is the person who sits beside us. It's the homeless person on the street. It's the person we don't know, the person we love, and the person we fear the most. This is our Sangha that we can be awakened by. 
Taking refuge is about not just following in the footsteps of the Buddha, but it is actually reaching, learning to reach for the heart of the Buddha within ourselves. We take just a couple of moments, quietly, silently. 